and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast. Um, you, I'm actually committing a kind of time travel right now because I am recording this way ahead of when you're going to hear it because I am now uh, on, I believe, on a rafting trip or perhaps I'm in an emergency room. It's not entirely clear to me. Um, uh, regardless, this is part two of my conversation with uh, Megan McArdle. Megan is a Washington Post columnist. Uh, she is... Um, um, crazy wicked smart, as they might say in the greater New England area. And I'm a huge fan of hers. And so we took a two-part, we took a long conversation and I might have decided to turn it into two uh, episodes of The Remnant. And uh, you can direct all of your rage about this or all of your celebratory zeal elsewhere because I'm away from any connectivity whatsoever. And today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Gabby and the Bradley Foundation. More about them in a little bit. Uh, so here we go. Part two of my conversation with Megan. All right, switching gears. Um, I, I, I want to ask you a weird... It's half feminism, half rank punditry. Okay? Oh, great. This is my brand. Um, so I got into a weird tiff last night with Susan Hennessy, who I like, I don't know personally, but she... There, I guess it was, I think it was a Politico article had a piece saying that there's a group of people, group of Democrats, um, who are trying to torpedo Kamala Harris's shot as VP by saying that uh, she's too ambitious and would be immediately hit the ground organizing a separate power center to run for president herself. And um, the word ambitious really offended Susan Hennessy, and she said, this is obviously just a sexist attack. And maybe it's because I had just talked to A.B. Stoddard about how, AB, uh, how Biden has two choices. He can either go with sort of a reassuring back-to-normalcy pick or a lean-in progressive revolutionary pick, right? Mm-hmm. Both picks would be women. That's already established. And but sort of, and one of the reasons why she was arguing, why I argue too, uh, that he might pick Susan Rice is that they've worked together before. She has no independent power base in the party. She's never run for office before. Now, I think Susan Rice is ambitious, but it's a different, I mean, like the founding fathers talked about political ambition being the defining feature of how they were setting up their constitutional system. And it's one of these things that just, it, it bothers me when like, I, you know, so I responded to her and said, look, I, I don't quite get why this is obviously sexist. It's, to me, it's obviously true that she is an ambitious politician. And she is one of the most ambitious. I mean, yeah, and I, she I don't fault her for it. Right? I mean, like, she just is. She's an amb- I mean, Ted Cruz gets dinged for being overly ambitious. There are lots of articles about that. And so is it, are you just not allowed to use the word ambitious with a negative connotation for women anymore? Is that is that the rule? I'm not just you know, you know, I, like, I mean, is so it like I, articulate for blacks. It just like whoa, yeah. you know, you can't just not allowed to say it. 
You know, I think that I think there is real, you know, I think there's residual sexism um, in the world. I I think I experience it in myself. I mean, I don't mean how I'm treated. I I also think I experience it in how I'm treated because I I think that the, the kind of lefty hatred towards me is out of proportion to my offenses in their own eyes, right? It, um, oh, you must get also grief from the Bernie Brown types. Oh, yeah, they hate me. Uh, Chapa Trap House, I believe, I've never actually listened to it, but I'm told by someone else that they were doing like a reading series on <laughs> my stuff for a while. It's apparently a big fan favorite. Um, but uh, I actually did listen to one um, one podcast because it came up and I didn't initially realize that it was just going to be literally like an hour of obsessing about me. And, um, and I was going to turn off except they, they were being mean about David Brooks too. And I was so mad. because I really <laughs> like David He's such a nice person. He How really could is. you be mean about David Brooks? Um, that's always been then, my biggest criticism of David Brooks is he's too nice. Too but, nice. You know. Um, but also that like the, one of the, the hosts, there's a man and a woman hosting and, they would start to talk about something else. She'd be like, can we just talk about Megan McCardle more? I was like, I'm not that interesting. Like my mother doesn't <laughs> talk about me. Doesn't want to spend an hour talking about me. Um, but so I think that, but I think that I see this too, um, that there are, are women who will set me off and I'll sort of think, well, why is this setting me off? Why am I so mad about her and not some other guy who does basically the same thing? And I think that there is, what I came up with, I wrote a long piece about Stephanie Cutter and the kind of disproportionate ire she attracted. And I will say this too, is like, if you compare the ire that Sean Spicer got with the ire that the female spokesmen have got, it is vastly disproportionate towards the women. And I think that's sexism. I don't think it's because the women are more deceptive or stupider or whatever. I think it's just like, what we can't, we can tolerate a woman working harder than us. And we can tolerate a woman making kind of moral claims. I am the better, you know, like I am standing for unborn babies or the dispossessed or whatever. And I care more about that than you because I, I have womanly virtue points, right? What we can't stand is a woman saying, you know what? Like, I'm just like, I thought through this and I'm smarter than you and you're wrong. And here's why it makes people crazy. What we can't stand is women who are out and aggressively defend something. Um, not from a point of view of like, I just, I just spent 20 years researching this, but just cause they're doing the defense. And that's why female presidential spokeswomen women get so much flack because they're doing what blacks do, right? They're not, you know, like, but, but they're, because they're out there taking an aggressive stance, it sets people's radar off and they freak out. So I think that that's true, but I think at the same time, um, you know, I, I remember an exchange I had with one guy, which was really funny. Um, so I wrote a piece on, uh, a while back, I started out as a tech consultant, like way back in the day in the nineties. And I wrote a piece on it, on why I left and, and the sexual harassment that I experienced. And weirdly, those actually weren't the same thing. Uh, I didn't leave because of the sexual harassment. Uh, I left because I realized I didn't care as much as my male coworkers did. And I never met a woman who cared as much as the guys did. I never met women who just, I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm saying I never met them in the tech doing world, in the tech world. OG computer programming. I haven't met any women who just care that much about like engineering things the way guys do. Like, I don't know any, I've not met, I'm saying, I know they exist, but they're rarer than men are. I just, you meet in the natural course of things way more men who are like, yeah, I just spent like my weekend fiddling with some, you know, like, fiddling with some 
technological task to like make uh, like a frame light up around my computer when I smile at it, you know, like just random things. You're more likely to find men doing that. Um, and that may account for why there are more men represented at the high ranks of tech. And um, I, I left a nice lefty feminist guy reached out to me and was like, don't you understand that this could, you know, you're not thinking about how marginalized people feel in, in a space where they're like marginalized. And I was like, um, (laughs) did you, did you white dude just mansplain, uh, (laughs) what it feels like to be a woman in tech to me? Really? (laughs) And so the funny thing though, was like, he went to like, he went ape. He was just like, uh, apologizing and so forth. I was like, I don't care. But I'm just saying, like, you understand now that this weapon is a two-way thing and not one that you can merely deploy against ideas that you dislike. And that, in fact, I don't think that's a really useful way to look at this. Let's just argue the facts, right? But, like, yes, obviously, I know what it's like to be the only woman in the office. I've almost never worked anywhere where I wasn't the only woman or one of, like, a tiny handful of women in my office. Um, and, yeah, there are, like, annoyances of that in the same way that there are annoyances of being the only conservative in a in a you know, left-leaning publication. Right, but so, but, uh, I, I, but just to get back to my point for a second. No, my point was that I don't think it's helpful to kind of litigate word choices like that. It was that, Sorry, it's a really long, shaggy dog story to get there. But, the, you know, even, even though I think that some of them are driven by that sort of thing, that we do actually worry more about ambitious women and so forth who are ambitious in the particularly naked way that Kamala Harris is. And I agree with you. She's about like Ted Cruz. Um, she grandstands, she's self-aggrandizing, she doesn't think about the health of her party, she thinks about the health of her career. Um, but uh, she, I think she does make some people more uncomfortable for it, but I don't think that, like, I also think that it's also nakedly true that I don't like Ted Cruz and I don't like T- Kamala Harris for largely the same reasons. Um, and that kind of policing people's words choice, word choices is just not useful because in any given case, you're not going to be able to, to detect whether this is sexism or something else. Yeah, I mean, so my my frustration with all this, and 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 without getting into, I don't think I'm immune to sexism. I know I've made, I've mansplained, I've you know all that kind of stuff. I I have somewhat antediluvian manners about. I'm not pol- accusing you here. No, in this no, 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 case. no, 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 no. I'm just, just actually like going up meta and being like, forget litigating I, this. It's I'm doing my can't. I'm doing my good Maoist recanting okay. of my own bourgeois sin. Okay, but. Um, I think partly I've always felt a little immune to this kind of, you know, I went to an all women's college and feminist screaming was very big in my college. And because I grew up with a very ambitious mother who, among other things, when I was a little kid, was a mounted policewoman and (laughs) was also a literary. I did not know that. Yeah. And uh, auxiliary, but still has great stories. And, um, and was a larger than life figure long before the Clinton scandals and all the rest. I always used to feel, I mean, my mom went around debating against the ERA saying equality was a step down for women. And so, like, she was just, she was a tough lady. And um, uh, and so when I got to college and I encountered all these people who were telling me, like, I don't think women can be anything other than, like, barefoot and pregnant. I was like, what are you talking about? You know, and it just I feel a little <laughs> immune to a lot of this stuff. But... One of my great, so you know that bumper sticker, I'm sure you've seen it a thousand times, uh, feminism is the radical idea that women are people too, yeah. or some, some version of that, right? The revolutionary idea that women are people too. I actually think that's true, right? If, if that's the definition of feminism, then I'm a feminist. And, um, and Now that's where I get off the boat, though. <laughs> <laughs> but because I'm a conservative, I am totally open to the idea that a lot of people suck, 
regardless of gender, mm. right? That man is fall- tragic view of human nature. Yeah, man and man and women, men and women, humans are fallen, crooked timber of humanity, that whole spiel. And so the idea, so what what bothers me a great deal is when you get into these debates, and if I'm crit- like take an easy example. During the primaries, I had a lot of criticisms for Elizabeth Warren, as you might imagine. Don't. You don't say. Yeah. So I was consistently told that my position was sexist. Mm. And yet I had a lot of praise for Amy Klobuchar. And um, it couldn't, it's like with the Hillary Clinton stuff. It's that, uh, you know, opposing her health care plan in the 1990s was simply sexism. As if, yeah. if it had a male pitchman, every conservative out there would have totally given in on it. And uh, pointing out that she was a bad candidate, I got dinged over and over. I am so tired of hearing people like, "No, Elizabeth Warren is a good candidate." I mean, the Democratic primary voters didn't think so, but I always thought she was a good. But Hillary Clinton was just like an objectively terrible candidate. She's and I'm open to the idea that that that's partly gendered. That like we judge women candidates differently than male candidates. I think that's. There's but the truth. worst thing she does is that thing where when she's trying to convey passion, she pushes into the top register of her voice and then she just sounds like she's like yelling at you to get downstairs because like you have to sit at the table and do your homework. Right, right. The thing is, Andrew Cuomo does exactly the same thing. I and mean, I noticed it at the DNC. and He's not going to be president either. Yeah. Right. Like because he does when he is trying to sound passionate, he sounds like he is annoyed and yelling at you. And like that's not who becomes president. And pointing that out. Some of it might be gendered, but also she was just objectively, she was tied to Bill's scandal. She was just a bad candidate. Right. And you weren't allowed to say that because sexism. That reminds me. I don't really have a good segue for today's sponsor because I'm recording this long after the conversation. And this is the best option. And we all need good options. And that's why I want to talk to you about Gabby. Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you an apples-to-apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers like Progressive, Nationwide, and Travelers. Just link your current insurance account, and in about two minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage you currently have. Gabby customers save $825 per year on average. And if they can't find you savings, they'll let you know so you can relax knowing that you have the best rate out there. And let me tell you, I sleep like a baby knowing that I have the best rate out there and it's not because of the scotch. And they'll never sell your info. So no annoying spam or robocalls. So it's totally free to check your rate. And there's no obligation and there's no sort of tracking you down by using your info. It just takes two minutes right now to see how much you can save on your car and homeowner's insurance. Go to Gabby.com slash remnant. Not dingo. Gabby.com slash remnant. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash remnant. R-E-M-N-A-N-T. Gabby.com slash remnant. We thank Gabby for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant, which is also your promo code. And and so I'm trying, I, I, I just been thinking about it since last night after this, this bet. I think that I'm okay with policing words that invoke some claim of essentialism, biological yeah. or otherwise, right? Um, and I think that's sort of 
maybe why the articulate thing probably qualifies is because you're you're making it sound like it's shocking that yes. you know black person articulate. So never I, heard of an articulate politician before, right? So I, 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 I but. The ambitious thing, if we can't use ambitious to describe some female politicians, we yeah. got to come up with another word for ambitious that's acceptable because some female politicians, because females are human beings too, and politicians are by definition susceptible to ambition, we're going to have to describe that characteristic of them, right? I mean, yeah. it just, it, and it, so I just, I get my hackles up when, you know, that whenever identity politics intrudes to make a universal claim about everybody in that specific category to defend the behavior of a specific individual. Well, and, but I mean, and, and this is the thing, the other reason I think we shouldn't use it, aside from the fact that I think in any individual case, these kinds of subtle, like statistical, on average, these people get more, but you can't necessarily tell in any particular case. Um, but also because it then ends up being used as a rhetorical move. Right. It's not, you know, any criticism of female politician. Oh, well, that's right. And, you know, I've, I've, I've had this conversation with people who think that, like, Republican opposition to Obamacare was all about racism. And like, no, I'm not saying that some opposition to Obama was not driven by racism. Undoubtedly, some was. But the idea that Obamacare would have gotten any more votes in Congress if, he, if Obama had been white is just crazy. Yeah, all you had to look at was how Republicans responded to Hillary care under Bill Clinton, right? Or Trump she was care. Yeah. You couldn't even get Trump care done, right? Like the That's fact true. is Republicans didn't want to do health care reform. They just didn't. And like they weren't going to be made to. And, you know, so I think that and the thing and the danger of it, and I think that this goes back to the Hillary Clinton example, is that not only by forestalling criticism, you feel like you're making yourself more powerful and more invulnerable. And what that allowed the Democratic Party to do was to nominate a candidate who had never won an actual competitive, hard fought election on her own, who had a tremendous amount of baggage um, and whose like sole virtue to hear many people talk was that she was going to be the first woman president, a, a role that millions, hundreds of millions of Americans could have filled. Um, and this was not like she wasn't a good candidate. And by forestalling so much criticism, by closing themselves off to noticing that, like, no, actually, she's a bad candidate. Um, people put the, the Democratic Party allowed Donald Trump to win. I always thought that part of the and as you as may not surprise you, I try really hard to. You know, you all have there are things that you were fairly expert on at earlier points in your career, and you're just like, yeah, I can delete those sections of my hard drive now. Oh yeah, I, I try oh, yeah. re really hard to do that with a lot of Clinton stuff. But um, <laughs> I, I was always of the opinion that it was. This is a hard. I haven't had to articulate this in a really long time. It wasn't just that she was going to be the first woman president. That there was this weird deal psychologically embedded in the heads of a bunch of elite meritocracy liberals who love Bill Clinton, that um, Hillary was going to get her shot too, that this was a co-presidency, that Hillary was the real smart one in the group and blah, 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 blah. And this is one of the reasons why they missed the, the it was this bizarre mistake of believing that there was a transitive property to political talent so they thought that simply because her last name was Clinton, she married Bill, that she acquired all of his political skill. It's as if, you know, uh, like simply by virtue of you marrying Peter, you're 
as good at video games as he is or whatever, right? Yeah, it, yeah. it just doesn't transfer like that. No. And Bill Clinton was one of the best extemporaneous political speakers of our lifetimes. Hillary Clinton was not that. And, and so I always thought that, that it's her turn, which was her original slogan, was this clever, or they thought clever, appeal to both things, an extension oh, of the, God, Clinton, yeah. the Clinton dynasty and, you know, the restoration of the, the, all of that and her vindication for putting up with all of Bill's crap yeah. and the turn of women of a certain demographic cultural slice to have the presidency. And, you know, and also let us point out that um, one element of this was the Democratic conviction, which was very strong uh, from 2012 on, that it was simply not possible for Republicans to win presidencies, right? That, you know, the the only really interesting question was who the Democrats were going to nominate and at which point it was over. And in some elections, that's true. I think it's true now, right? I think that maybe Democrats could have lost it by nominating Bernie, but short of that, you know, it didn't matter who they nominated. Donald Trump has wrecked his own presidency, the Republican party and the country, um, and by being incompetent. Uh, even if you give him a buy on the first three months of the COVID crisis, which I do, um, the last two months have been a disaster entirely of his own making. Yeah. I mean, um, I think, I think, the best, I mean, so I've been writing columns about how this pivot to being a presidential figure is like oh. waiting for Godot for three and a half years, right? Just, it's just, yeah. it's not him, right? I mean, the scorpion must sting. He's yeah, got to. He's not capable of it. Screw it up, right? But this last bit where he reversed himself on masks, back to the war footing on the pandemic, all that kind of stuff, and then tweeting out the demon semen doctor. Um, and then defending the demon semen doctor while signing, like you remember Barack Obama once like misquoted Rutherford B. Hayes or something like that. <laughs> and I'm, I'm serious about this. I mean, I'm not God. making the, I'm not making the tan suit problem, but I'm just making that. And, I, I, and a lot of conservatives, particularly vets of like the Bush, administ Bush administrations mm -hmm. and the Reagan were like, you would never let that kind of error this into a, a formal presidential speech. You know, you wouldn't rely on Wikipedia. You know, think the right. fact-checking process used to be this rigorous thing, blah, 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 blah. And Trump, in defending, tweeting out this woman who makes claims about alien DNA being used in medicines and how Fauci and these people are secretly using hydrochloroquine and how you can get gyne gynecological problems if... You have a dream about sleeping with a demon. Um, he just basically says, well, I saw it. And there were these very prestigious doctors with her. He can't name any of them. He has no idea because it was a video on Twitter. And everyone just takes it for granted that that's how he does things. But there's just no way that, that is reassuring yeah. to the voters he needs to win back on the pandemic. Similarly, let's kick the elect. Let's delay the election because of. Oh, yeah. Um, which came out this morning that we're recording this, he floated this trial balloon, just asking questions about delaying the election because of the voter fraud of mail-in balloting. And um, the thing is, you know, at this point, I'm actually, I am so tired of Donald Trump. Like, people are like, why aren't you writing columns about how terrible he is? And it's like, because I'm tired. Because I've been I'm saying exhausted. it for three and a half years, and I'm tired. But, um, you know, that, the, the thing that's most worrying about Trump isn't, 
him at this point. It's the Republicans who then feel compelled to defend whatever stupid thing or wrong thing. And the thing I was heartened about was like, John Barrasso was apparently like, no, we're not delaying the election. And, and Ari Fleischer came out and was like, no, this is absolutely wrong. It should never, you know, you should never say that. So I, I think that, you know, the, the immune system of the Republican Party at least kicked in a little bit, which is uh, heartening because I would really like to vote for Republicans again. You know, I would really like, I live in, in DC, so it doesn't really matter, but I would still like to. And um, it, they need to, and I'm not even arguing that like, they just need to go back to the kind of old fusionist consensus. They just need to not have this man at the head of the party or someone like him. They need to have someone who does not tell people to not wear masks in a pandemic, who does not you know, tweet out the demon semen video who does not even jokingly on Twitter suggest that maybe we, first of all, it's not a joke. I hate that. Like it's a trial balloon because Donald Trump actually thinks that people are going to let him delay the election. Yeah, um, I, I, the only way I only way I push back on that is that I also am fairly convinced, you know, again, we're recording on Thursday. Um, you got the annualized GDP decline come out at 32.9% for the second quarter. Mm-hmm. And I turned on Fox and it was really kind of amazing. I got to say my friend Chris Dyerwalt was great at just throwing cold water on the whole delay of the election thing. He thought it was nonsense and all that. But Trump got the desired effect he wanted out of this because... Which was he took the attention off the GDP numbers. Everyone's talking about that and not how the economy on an annualized rate dropped 32%, which is, I mean, you're the economics gal here, right? But that's bad, right? (laughs) <laughs> it's very bad. Um, it's what we would have expected, though, right? I mean, we 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 sent everyone home from work, and if they're not working, it is very hard for them to produce GDP. Um, and so, it's not out of line, I think, with what I would have expected. the The worry is not that I actually I was a favor I was in favor of shutting down. The worry is that um, not only thanks to Donald Trump. I mean, I also think local health authorities, the United, the U S institutional failure during this pandemic has shocked me at every level. And it's not just Trump. It's the CDC failing in ways that aren't, uh, if anyone on the left is listening to this, they aren't just because of Trump, they are internal CDC failures of massive and shocking proportions. Uh, the FDA has done better, but has not covered itself in glory. The local health authorities, have made mistake after mistake. They are not being, and I'm not talking about red states now. I'm talking about blue states that don't have the contact tracing capability they need. Blue states who can't figure out what to do with their schools, who di- who apparently didn't realize the sc- schools would be reopening in the fall, and that maybe they needed to think about this more than two weeks in advance. Um, watching other countries get a handle on this, watching the public health authorities who say, and and the mayors and everyone else who said no public gatherings except for massive street protests. Right. Watching the the failure has been serial and repetitive and devastating. And bipartisan. Um, what? And bipartisan. Yes. Yeah. But that said, special place does go to Trump oh, sure. and Republicans because they are the people who more than Democrats at the beginning were bad denialists. I'm not, you know, but and Democrats in the beginning and have done enormous damage by allowing those protests to happen while shutting everything else down. Yeah. On and like also being. Level. Also, I mean, it, 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 this is one of the things I try to get out of, of, of not ascribing to vast categories of people, the bad acts of small numbers of people, um, which is if everybody had that practice, Twitter would shut down tomorrow. Yeah, I know. But, but an enormous number of people, relatively speaking, made really insensitive arguments about how 
conservatives want to reopen things because they miss getting a haircut. And we want racial justice and, and systemic racism. Yeah. There are conservatives who were mad about not being able to visit loved ones when they died. You know, I mean, go there to were a lot funeral. Of, yeah. yeah, go to a funeral. And, um, you know, the, the smug condescension that came from the other, well, from both sides, to be honest. I mean, it, but yeah. it's the, it has accelerated the distrust of anybody who's not on your team to a level that I, I found really shocking. And I, I, I personally think the nationalists, um, the, or the post-liberal integralists or whatever we're supposed to call them, they're the ones who really blew it because the pandemic was like designed yep. for people who say, hey, look, we need to get past this sort of classical liberal structure of limited government. There's some things that we're all in it together, got to take care of each other. And yet you had, you know, Rusty Reno of First Things and all these people coming out saying, you know, masks are for cowards and, and you know, ignore all this. And it just, it's amazing the missed opportunity there. Yeah, you have a plague that comes out of China for China's ineptness and then its active conspiracy to conceal the extent of what was going on. It shuts down immigration and trade. You have a ready-made crisis for them and they blew it because the, the guy at the top was a sucking power vacuum who has just destroyed like his just incredible level of incompetence at doing even basic, basic stuff. Like why not tell people to wear masks? Right. What, what, what's the harm? Why not? You know, and there was just this magical thinking and they indulged him in it and they joined him in it because that was how they were going to own the libs dying to own the libs, right? Like old people are your voters guys. You don't, anything that kills them disproportionately is bad for you. Um, you know, and I think there's a lot of it. There's a lot going on here. There's also the fact that even in blue states, let's be honest, people are not distancing the way they should. And, you know, they're having parties and they're doing all of this stuff. Um, and they're just, they're, everyone is trying to free ride on everyone else's precautions. Um, but it is worse in red states. And Donald Trump you know, his CDC is failing and he's not cracking heads and making something happen. He's, you know, and what the CDC is getting right, he's counter programming with liberate Michigan and liberate, you know, yeah, like exactly. You know. <laughs> um, and he is the problem. He is the reason Republicans are going to lose not only the White House, but it looks like the Senate. And I'm not excited about that. No, you know, no, I, no. I depart from I'm really worried about what what unified Democratic control of the Senate looks like under these circumstances. Um, I don't join with my colleagues in being like, yes, we must crush the Republicans and this is how they have to learn, first of all, because I don't think that's actually like a very good model of how parties learn. Um, and second of all, or people, how people learn. And second of all, because like, you know, Democrats could do a lot of damage, right? And, you know, I I am worried about the the radicalism that I see in certain elements of the party and I'm not sure how restrained it would be. I, I worry that they would, for example, try to pack the court. That's a mainstream idea on the left now. And that really worries me. But that said, like, you know who the number one bears the number one responsibility for that? Donald Trump and the people who forced Donald Trump on the party and then on the country. No, I, you're not going to get an argument from me about that. The, the third problem, you listed two of them. The third problem with the sort of Lincoln, what was it, Project Lincoln people, yeah. is that the people that you, the politicians that you will have the greatest chance and greatest likelihood of quote unquote punishing for enabling Trump are still the least Trumpy 
members of the party. And so what you end up being left, I mean, this is one of the points that Paul Ryan and his people made in 2016, is that he was trying to protect the least Trumpy members of his caucus. Um, And if, and this is back when they thought that Trump was going to lose. And what you could end up having is that the Western Pennsylvania guys who were Trump won by 20%, they become the majority of a rump party and define the party for a generation. And that's how you get a longer tail for Trumpism. It's a concern. You know, well, I'm so you get a longer it. tail within the party, but then you get a shorter tail, right? I mean, this is the this is the thing that Freddie DeBoer, who's a great internet writer, called uh, you know uh, stole from John Schwartz the Iron Law of Institutions, which is that people care more about their position within an institution than they care about the power of the institution. Um, and in the right circumstances, what that can lead to is this incredibly destructive infighting where you wreck the institution and like now you have control of this thing that you can't do anything with. And I think there's a real risk that Republicans, that that the people who told me, you know, there's no difference between Marco Rubio and Hillary Clinton. And like, that's just not true. Even on immigration, that was not true. That was not even a little bit true. Right. Um, And, you know, if you've now handed them like huge majorities in the Senate and the president and the presidency and the house, which is now what looks like a real live possibility um, you know, all of the stuff you told me you had to vote for Trump for in order to get, it would have been, those those people would actually have been better off if he had lost in 2016. You know, it's partly because of conversations like this that the remnant exists. Because during these trying times, it's really hard to sort of process and keep current events um, in perspective. And that's something that also our friends at the Bradley Foundation are trying to do with Conceived in Liberty, the Bradley Speaker Series. It's a new video series that offers meaningful perspectives through engaging 15-minute interviews. Visit bradleyfdn.org slash liberty to watch their most recent episode featuring British author and historian Andrew Roberts. The author of numerous award-winning books, including his most recent book, Churchill, Walking with Destiny, Roberts is a foremost expert on Winston Churchill. He's also an expert on Napoleon, and I just bought his Napoleon book to take with me on my trip. In this episode, he addresses Churchill's approach to governing during a crisis and how he evolved from statist to staunch advocate of the free market system. Roberts also shares his take on the destruction of historical monuments. So that's Bradley with an L-E-Y at the end, fdn.org slash liberty to watch the video. New episodes will debut weekly, So go back often and subscribe to their YouTube channel to be notified whenever a new one is posted. We thank the Bradley Foundation Speaker Series for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. All right, well, we've gone long. We may even break this into two-parter, which was sort of my decision not to call it audible and just end it earlier. You're just too fascinating, Jonah. I don't know, but it's it's, it's nice to talk to you. Yes. Um, We didn't even do any New York reminiscing. Um, oh, which, I'm, I'm really worried about New York. I think I think they're going to have a fiscal crisis, like a big fiscal crisis. Um, <laughs> so, talking about a place we, that's about to undergo a great relearning indeed. Um, in a bunch of different ways. And um, under under the second most incompetent politician in the United States. So, um, yeah. OK, so. Yes. OK, fair. Uh, fair enough. <laughs> um, it's just that like de Blasio, I mean, de Blasio managed to do something that even Donald Trump hasn't quite done. He is hated 
by everybody across the ideological spectrum. And yeah, I actually sort of wondered if he, if John Lindsay, so John Lindsay's the, there was the mayor of New York uh, in the late sixties and early seventies. He ran for president, not successfully. He switched parties because he was too, now too left for the Republican party. Uh, and he is widely regarded as like the worst mayor in the 20th century of New York. Um, in part, I think a little bit unfairly, he just presided over a bunch of stuff that was going to happen in the late sixties that he didn't cause, but none, you know, fair or not, that was his reputation. Uh, there's a great book by Vince Canato, The Ungovernable City, which I highly recommend to readers. To He's listeners. one of my oldest friends and has been oh. a remnant guest. And well, uh, tell him he wrote a great book that I love. He did. Um, it's a good and anyway, so uh, I, I sort of wonder, like, did John Lindsay's family pay de Blasio to rehabilitate his <laughs> reputation? Because <laughs> de Blasio has definitely knocked John Lindsay out of the canon of world mayors in the last hundred years. I've told this story a couple times on the podcast, including when Vin uh, came on. Um, and uh, like literally, I knew Vin in the early 90s when he was an editor at the Public Interest and I was a policy gnome at AEI. And we've been friends for 20 years. And uh, but when that book came out, right, so that had been his Ph.D. thesis. And oh. there's a whole Lindsay mafia in New York. Uh, <laughs> it's probably aging out, you know, but. Um, yes, yeah, so my dad was a very young staffer in the Lindsay administration. So like, I mean, way, way. He was at the Health and Hospitals Corporation. But uh, so if he I mean, my dad is 78, so I'm going to assume that the older people who are actually running things. Are- yeah. But so like they hounded him. He would give a book talk at like uh, Barnes and Noble on 83rd or 82nd. And, um, and they'd show up and they'd, they'd just give him this terribly rough time for disparaging Lindsay. And the one thing I remember Vin talking about it, and I apologize to listeners who heard this before, but the one thing they would always bring up is that uh, Lindsay brought Hollywood back to New York. And he's right. He was the guy who um, pioneered those tax credit schemes with ah. studios or whatever. And it's because Hollywood had basically left New York for like 15 years. Like there were like those Doris Day, Rock Hudson, Tony Randall, Technicolor, mm-hmm. fun musical kind of things. And then they disappear. And then Vin would always respond, that's true. He did. And he deserves deserve some credit for that. Now let's look at the movies made <laughs> under that program. Yes. Taxi Driver, Death Wish, Panic in Needle Park, Taking of Pelham 123, French Connection, right? It's all, all these dystopian, my God, New York is horrible. That's the New York that Lindsay bequeathed to, you know, New Yorkers. We should, we should, we should do like, we should organize like a Zoom New York movie night, starting with a naked city and then moving forward to. That would be fun. Uh, I could get, I could get Padoritz to do that. Um, oh my God. We should do, we should actually do this, Jonah. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to email you and badge you and you're going to be like, I didn't actually mean it. I said it to be nice on the podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's absolutely true. And I love all those old movies because that's the New York you and I grew up in. And now like a little later, but it's funny. Like I remember my early childhood in like the kind of sepia, the kind of washed out tones of like the opening to Good Times actually set in Chicago. But like that urban thing of like, you know, weirdly, like the streets were filthy, but the sidewalks, the concrete had mica in them. So, you know, you would be running down the sidewalk and it's just filthy and covered in garbage, but then it's glittering. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I still remember the cognitive dissonance of, of that and like 
I remember um, disco- realizing that these black spots all over the sidewalk and the subway platforms. <laughs> I mean, I, I just assumed they were like part of the ge- the geology of the no, sidewalk. they were it gum. Of, it was just gum. And, that had collected filth. And I remember my friend Nick Schultz, I took him. I mean, he'd been to New York, but like he hadn't really been to New York. This is in the early 90s. And, uh, and I was like, and he was just living there. And uh, so I guess it was later 90s. Anyway, and I was like, dude, we're coming out drunk from a bar. I was like, dude, you know, all those black spots are gum. And he would just walk around going, <laughs> it's all gum. gum? Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, but uh, yeah, no, we should, you know, like we should do more New York reminiscing. But um, anyway, thank you so much for yeah, doing thanks this. Yeah, for having me. I really enjoyed it. And, as I uh, always do. Give my best to Peter. Give my best to the beast, which, you know, look, I mean, in the hierarchy of things, I'm supposed to root more for Peter than your dog, but you know, at least I have yeah. conflicts here. Because we'll pass on my felicitations and those of Fitzgerald, who, by the way, has been assisting with this entire podcast. He is uh, he is sleeping at my feet at the moment. Um, but pass on his felicitations to your beasts and let them know that there is a bull mastiff out there who would love nothing more in the entire world to play with him with them if he was allowed to. Okay, so Megan has left left. Uh, um, the astral plane of the podcastosphere. Uh, I know I'm going to get a lot of blowback from people saying we were too hard on Trump and all that kind of stuff. My view is basically, well, it's twofold. One, if you were still listening by the end where the, the Trump's criticism got really intense, uh, you probably already agree with me and Megan. And uh, two, relatedly, I think Megan's right. Uh, that, that, that the pandemic was one of the great gimmies in all of political history, and uh, he just simply dropped the ball and, um, and did it for silly reasons. And um, yes, other countries have screwed this up. Uh, yes, other countries have struggled. Yes, other countries have second waves, all of these various things. Um, but when in the midst of a global pandemic, the richest, most technologically advanced country in the world has a quarter of all the global deaths of a pandemic, you can no longer brag about how well we've handled it. And um, I think it's pretty much as simple as that. And it's not even close to over. So on that cheery note, um, I'm going to get out of here. I got to go write a column. Um, I got to go use some acid to take off my fingerprints for reasons that have nothing to do with this. And um, I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. (laughs) 